In this episode, I speak with Nick Land, the online sleep coach. His experience and background in fitness and nutrition evolved to becoming a sleep coach. He realized that sleep was clearly foundational to wellness, but also the complexity and the various influencers that impact our rest and the quality and quantity. Um, we dig into a variety of the physiological effects, what those influencers are, the scale of issues nationally on sleep apnea. Um, we also dig into his four pillars on how to work through your own personal uh, assessment and understanding you know the personalized approach to sleep recognizing your chronotypes some of the things you eat think and watch before you head to bed so dig in there's a lot of great information we get a little bit in the technical side but also there's a lot of great actionable information that Nick shares and you can find all his information online um, sit back enjoy and look forward to your feedback all right well today my guest uh, is Nick Lamb owner and CEO of online sleep coach uh, welcome Nick thanks for having me so I'm uh, I'm excited to have you on um, talking about sleep and the importance of it. Uh, and it's, it's really for me, you know, one of the key foundational elements to why I even started this for my own personal journey of wellness was sleep was a key, um, hurdle I had. And so, uh, really looking forward to understanding what you do and the value of sleep. Um, so kind of to that point, people are listening and like sleep, it's what we all do. Um, what is a sleep coach and why would I need one? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely, I think a sleep coach is not something a lot of people hear a lot about or that they really resonate with. Um, you know, a little bit background on me um, quickly. I've been a, in the industry, health and fitness industry for, for many years. Um, originally a personal trainer and strength coach, obviously dealing with a lot of general population clients, um, you know, people coming in and trying to lose weight, improve their performance, um, whatever it was. Um, and what I found was, you know, going through intake process with people and going through conversations with people, sleep issues were coming up over and over again. So obviously it was something I dove a little bit more into to try to be able to help the clients that I was working with. And really what I ended up finding was that most sleep issues, especially when you talk about chronic sleep issues, so people who have been dealing with sleep issues for a long time, uh, tend to be pretty behavioral in nature, meaning the underlying behaviors, habits, thoughts um, tend to drive a lot of the sleep issues, especially when we talk about long term. So when we talk about behavior change and we talk about those, those elements, um, you know, it, it links very, very well with coaching. So the way I view it is sleep requires coaching very similarly to other elements of health and wellness, whether it's fitness or nutrition. A lot of the same elements that go into coaching are also required for, for sleep. And when you look at the sheer amount of people that are really struggling with sleep, um, I think there needs to be more coaches who are you know, kind of helping people through this process. Sure. So, and like you said, you come from a personal training perspective, so you get to see kind of the holistic aspect of a, of an individual and you mentioned the intake. So what were some of the symptoms uh, you kind of touched on a few of them, but, uh, or common challenges that folks have around sleep yeah. issues? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you have, you have two camps really with, with this. So firstly, there was quite a few people that 
were just dealing with sleep issues in general, right? They were either having trouble falling asleep, uh, they'd get fragmented sleep where they'd get awakenings during the night and they wouldn't be able to fall back asleep. Um, they'd wake up pretty much immediately needing caffeine. Um, they feel like they would be needing a nap at some point in the day. They'd feel fatigued during the day. They you know, wouldn't be able to focus. They feel that they would be a little more irritable, all the things that come along with, with sleep deprivation. Um, and then the other, the other camp is where people might not be dealing with a sleep issue per se, but their sleep could definitely use some optimization. Where, and what I mean by that is people tend, a lot of people in my experience tend to have this new baseline set where, um, you know, they think it's normal to, you know, immediately wake up and need caffeine and not feel rested or, you know, to have lulls in the day where their energy levels aren't really all that high. Um, and it's just become the new norm, right? It's just the way it is, especially in the corporate space. I see that a lot. Um, and it just becomes, again, this new norm. And, you know, until you start having these conversations with people and asking some of these questions and digging a little bit deeper on their sleep and their sleep routine, you know, people don't even realize how much better they might be able to function uh, in all avenues of their life, really. Yeah, there's almost like a deeper meaning or phys physiological aspect to that tired. Um, and a little bit of around, you mentioned corporate America, kind of the culture historically has been like, the more tired you are, it's like that water cooler talk, you know? Yeah, it's like for a, sure. You're, you're rewarded for, you know, being up late and responding to emails and then being up super early, also responding to emails. Um, you know, a lot of the, the things that still really exist within the corporate world of, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or sleep is for the week. And as crazy as that sounds, there, you know, there's a lot of that mentality still, you know, still going around. And, you know, you also have this very, very, very small subset of the population who can actually get by on less sleep. So they tend to be more efficient in their sleep cycles um, and they can actually get by on around six hours pretty consistently. But I always, the big caveat with that is that is less than a percent of the population. So for the people that are listening and think, oh, that's me, more than likely it's not. Um, but I, I point that out because, you know, there's there's people out there, especially in the corporate space, a lot of CEOs that will claim, you know, or even the president of the United States, for example, will claim, you know, they only get three, four hours of sleep and they get by and function just fine. Um, right. And that might be a case too, where even if they feel like they're getting by, there's a difference between getting by and thriving. And that's what I always try to explain to people as well. So, yeah, it was a, a question for me is, is, you know, you hear anywhere from seven to nine hours. Is that kind of your general baseline? Um, it, yeah, I mean, it is in a way, um, I think much like most things in fitness and health, um, it really depends. So it, it is, it is on a case by case basis. I think, firstly, I think we are way too focused on, uh, quantity over quality. I think when the only measure of sleep help that people look at is duration, we lose sight of that quality of sleep and we lose out on a lot of the other elements of how we can really, you know, make the most of our sleep. But you know, duration definitely is one of the pillars that is important. And we know that when you shortchange the actual amount and quantity of sleep that you're getting, you know, you're going to see some negative effects. But I think taking a step back to understand where this duration recommendation actually came from. So there were some studies where they looked at people and they were mapping them out over many years. And they were basically trying to find what's the link between sleep duration and mortality, right? How long you live, um, as well as another, a lot of other elements uh, to that as well. And they were trying to control for all the other variables and try to isolate just sleep. And basically what they found was there was a sweet spot of sleep around seven, eight hours where there was the lowest mortality risk. And if you go below that, we see an increased mortality risk. And if also if you go above that, 
Um, so I think one of the things we'll touch on is, you know, is too much sleep uh, a bad thing as well? And actually the greatest mortality risk was too much sleep. So when you go above that seven to eight hours, you know, into the range of 10 hours, um, we also see some detriments as well. And I think part, part of the reason for that is when you start to see people sleeping 10, 11 hours, they're usually dealing with some type of chronic disease or some type of illness and they're sleeping a lot, a lot longer. The other element to this of where this duration came from is there's some studies that have been done where basically if you take people out of the modern environment, right, technology, job responsibilities, all these things, and you just put them in a as close to natural kind of the way things used to be many years ago, and you just kind of let them get a buffet of sleep, what people tend to crave physiologically is again in that seven, eight, uh, nine hours of sleep. Um, but like I said, it's not the it's not the only element to sleep. And I don't you know, I never want people to get too focused on the duration because what ends up happening too a lot with this is if people get too focused on the duration and they're not getting that duration, whether it's due to schedule or just, you know, prioritization or whatever it is, you know, they tend to view sleep very negatively, you know, so sometimes it's it's better off only getting six hours of really good quality sleep where you're prioritizing the right things as opposed to being in bed for eight hours and kind of stressing and thinking you have to get this, you know, necessary amount of sleep. So there's four pillars that I look at that are really important when we talk about what makes up healthy sleep. So the first is, is duration, right? That is one element like we touched on. The next is quality, right? So the actual depth of sleep, the electrical signature of the sleep, the depthness of the sleep, how much time are you spending in those deeper stages of sleep, which we can talk about. Uh, the third is continuity. So, and the fourth is regularity. And the difference between continuity and regularity is regularity pertains to really the consistent timing of when you go to bed and when you wake up, right? Um, pertaining to keeping a healthy circadian rhythm and how that impacts not only your sleep, but your overall health. Continuity is basically not getting fragmentations throughout the night. So not getting these kind of you know, disruptions within your stages of sleep, not having any long periods of time where you're not sleeping or not going through the stages of sleep. And, you know, what we find is if you shortchange any one of those four pillars or any one of those four, el four elements, we're missing out on all the benefits to sleep. Okay. No, that's, that's a great breakdown. So let's walk through, you know, those four, if we could briefly, you mentioned duration already. So quality, you know, how do you uh, determine and discern quality for yourself? You, you know, you did say it's individualized, so there's some general rules of thumb. But how do you, as an individual, know, how do you feel? What, what, what should you expect to feel on a consistent basis? Yeah, so this is obviously the, hard, the hardest part. And it's, you know, it's in a lot of ways, it's subjective. Obviously, the first thing that people will think of and, and talk about are sleep trackers. And this is definitely something I use with clients, um, but there's a couple caveats. Firstly, if you are someone who struggles with sleep and tends to have a little bit more stress and anxiety around your sleep and your inability to sleep, I would discourage from using sleep trackers, at least at the onset, because I feel that they promote more of that stress and anxiety and more of that, you know, kind of lead up, especially if you're not getting the right, you know, numbers. Uh, the other caveat is keeping in mind how accurate sleep trackers are and they're getting a lot better. They really are. I feel like every day and every month they're progressing a little bit further. They're taking into account more variables. Um, but the research to, to look at these things hasn't quite caught up to 
how the trackers have progressed. So we don't really know how accurate they are when you talk about distinguishing between sleep stages. Like how much time did you spend in, you know, deep sleep stage three versus stage two versus stage four um, versus, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot more murky. So it's very difficult to, you know, to distinguish those sleep stages. When you talk about, you know, the sleep trackers estimating sleep duration or distinguishing between non-REM sleep and rapid eye movement sleep, it tends to be pretty good. But once you start to get deeper, um, they tend to be just less accurate. And I think that will eventually change. Um, and I think we'll get closer to that. But for right now, just keeping that in mind. So really the best way to look at quality is how you feel the following day, right? And how you function. And you have to you have to find subjective measures that I think are important to you. So when I'm working with someone from a, a client perspective, I, I tie it to the things that are either necessary for their life or their job or their goals, um, the things that are important. Um, but really just in general, you know, <clears throat> do you wake up feeling rested, right? Do you wake up and immediately need caffeine or do you have a natural sense of energy when you wake up? You know, how sleepy do you feel during the day? Do you feel like you need a nap at, you know, kind of that mid midday lull, um, you know, do you need caffeine in the afternoon to, to get through? Are you, do you, you know, do you have the ability to focus, especially as you get into the afternoon and into the evening? So all of those things, especially, you know, cognitively, I think can tell you a lot about your sleep quality. And if you're really being honest with those things and tracking them, you could get a pretty good perspective of, you know, the quality of sleep, especially if you're, you know, say getting what you think is eight hours or you're prioritizing getting eight hours of sleep and you're still waking up and experiencing those things throughout the day and in the morning, you know, then you really want to be looking at the fact that you're, there's probably some disrupted sleep quality there. And so there could be some kind of underlying health issue or, or something along those lines, whether it be stress or perhaps nutrition or what you're doing the night before as you prepare to go, go to bed. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, one of the benefits to sleep trackers or even tracking these subjective measurements is you want to create context. So, you know, having all this information really doesn't tell you a whole lot unless you have context. So unless you have the context around, like you were just mentioning, what you did the night before, you know, what did you eat? What was your sleep routine? You know, what's your stress levels like right now? So the more things that you can get context around, you can really start to pinpoint what might be affecting your sleep in a negative way. One of the things that you touched on was, you know, certain medical conditions. And I think this is always important to, you know, point out, especially for me as a, being a coach, I'm not a, healthcare practitioner. So um, there are a lot of medical conditions and what we call comorbidities that can impact sleep. And they're usually a bi-directional relationship where those things can, can significantly impact sleep and sleep can impact those conditions as well, especially when you talk about a lot of psychiatric conditions. So, you know, a big part of the screening process, assessment process for me is making sure that, you know, none of these underlying medical conditions are really what's what's driving the, you know, the sleep issues. So for example, a big thing that is really under-focused on and under-emphasized that I talk a lot about with clients is sleep apnea. Um, an estimated 90% of sleep apnea is going undiagnosed right now. Basically sleep apnea, the common version of this is what we call obstructive sleep apnea. And it's basically, it's basically a cessation of breathing in the middle of the night. Um, it, it will often cause snoring. It will cause daytime fatigue. You'll often wake up with a dry mouth. Um, you'll often wake up with morning headaches. So if you're experiencing any of those things, you know, snoring, especially chronically, is not normal. And I think this is something that, you know, has been put out there too much and too many people snore. So we just kind of think of it as, well, I'm a snorer. 
right? right. There's a reason typically why you're, you might be snoring. So that's just one example of if apnea is the underlying condition, apnea comes with a lot of serious health risks in addition to obviously negative, negatively impacting your sleep and your energy levels and all of these other things. So, you know, going to see a medical professional and getting the apnea treated would be the first, uh, the first step. So just, you know, kind of that caveat that you want to make sure there's no underlying medical conditions. Sure. Sure. Um, so you real quick, you mentioned the different tools out there now. Uh, do you use one yourself just to kind of test these as a sleep coach to assess the validity of, of some of these tools? Is there one you use particularly? Yeah, definitely. So I've, I've pretty much experimented with the vast majority of them, both for myself and my clients. And I'm trying to, you know, if a new one comes out or a new version or rendition, I try to, you know, stay pretty current. As of right now, I think the Aura Ring is still the best option. Um, in part because when you talk about a lot of the trackers and things that are out there, they're, a lot of them are recovery trackers or they're health trackers. And they take into account a lot of different variables, right? So they're the, the data and statistics that they're trying to crunch are a lot of different things, right? And the more things that a device actually does, the less accurate and efficient it is at each element of that. So, you know, with the Aura Ring, it's taking into account different variables, but with the main objective being slap tracking sleep. So its sole focus is on tracking sleep, which makes it mu that much more effective as opposed to, you know, certain recovery bands that are out there, like, you know, the Whoop band or something like that, where they're trying to crunch a lot of data. So each element of that may be a little bit less accurate because of how much that device actually has to do. But, you know, Aura Ring, I know they're doing a lot of their own studies and a lot of things that they'll probably be releasing fairly soon where they're comparing their sleep tracker data to what we call polysomnography. And polysomnography is basically the gold standard within the sleep space of how do you measure sleep? How do you track sleep? So this would be done like in a sleep lab where you're hooked up to all these wires, um, you know, kind of an alien looking type of, uh, type of setup. Um, right. But it's actually looking at your brain waves. And really the only way to get 100% accuracy with how you're sleeping is through polysomnography. So you know, that's how we can kind of look at the validity is to compare the data to the gold standard, right, to that polysomnography. And I know Aura Ring is doing, you know, a lot of that. And I know that they're pretty happy with the results that they've been getting. And I'm sure we'll see more of that. So I think right now, the Aura Ring is the best option. Gotcha. Yeah, I was curious as to what they're using, because I know you put it on, I think it's your ring finger. Um, and I thought it was measuring heart rate. And I was just curious how they are able to extrapolate more data or discern, you know, from that one or what seemed like one key metric? Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, the, the, the standard used to be just what we call actigraphy, where it was just kind of looking at movement and that was, you know, just one element. And now there's different layers where they're looking at, you know, they're looking at obviously heart rate, they're looking at heart rate variability. Um, they're looking at respiratory rate. They're looking at temperature. Um, so they're trying to get in as many variables as possible. Obviously, the only thing that's missing is the, the brainwave activity, right? Which is, again, why maybe it's less accurate when we talk about distinguishing between stages of sleep, because the brainwave activity is really how we know, are you in stage three of deep sleep? Are you in stage four? How much time are you spending there? Um, so all the other things are kind of just estimations of that. But Right. But at least it's directionally correct, right? It's giving you some data. And I'm guessing you need you probably want a few weeks worth to be able to really assess. And then, as you mentioned add that context to each day. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the things that the thing that sleep trackers are doing a phenomenal job at is they're creating more awareness for people, right? Then it's, 
it's bringing it more into the forefront of people, you know, tracking it, being concerned with it, you know, trying to prioritize improving it, all of those things. And even if they might be slightly inaccurate in some ways, I think the thing to note is they're consistently inaccurate. So again, when you have that context and you're tracking it over time, you can still get a lot of information in terms of how, you know, say exercise or nutrition or alcohol or caffeine or any of these things might be impacting your sleep. Okay. So um, continuity is number three. Mm -hmm. So again, continuity is the, basically, well, taking a step back, we go through all of the stages of sleep every 90 minutes, right? We call this uh, a sleep cycle. And at the end of that 90 minutes, everyone actually does get a brief period of awakening. When we're getting good, consistent sleep and is not disrupted in any way, we don't even realize that that actually happens. And we just continue through the next, uh, the next cycle of sleep, right? That next 90 minutes. When you have disrupted continuity, and this can be for a variety of different reasons, when you have disrupted continuity, you're, those periods in between sleep cycles are longer, or there could be things that are actually disrupting the cycle itself, where you may be getting kind of yanked out of the deeper stages of sleep, whether it's, you know, the wrong temperature in the room, right? If it, if it gets too hot and it kind of pulls you out of a deeper stage of sleep, noise, um, unfortunately, a partner, right? A partner kicks you or something like that um, <laughs> is definitely possible. And I know it's happened to me many times. Um, so that's the, the continuity aspect. You want to try and control for as many variables as you can to keep your sleep cycles, you know, disrupt, un, un, uninterrupted. Okay. And so are there tools? So I started to use, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, sleep has been a challenge for me and it's been evolving over the last four years. And um, I recently started using weighted blankets. Mm-hmm. So any thoughts on that from, uh, to me, it's felt like it's helped with my continuity where I'm not moving as much. I'm not um, kind of the, I guess that the 90 minutes, I probably would wake up and roll over and kind of wake up and then go back to sleep. Sure. Yeah. I think, I mean, anecdotally, I've seen pretty good, uh, pretty good results with weighted blankets. I haven't really had anyone say that it affects their sleep in a negative way. So whether it's, even if it's placebo and people just anticipate that it's helping their sleep and decreases, I think a lot of what the weighted blanket will do too. We talked about at the onset of how, you know, a lot of sleep issues are very behavioral, whether it's like a lack of confidence or, Um, Believe it or not, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, sleep is a very vulnerable state for us. So I think evolutionarily, we, anything that makes us feel more protected while we sleep actually plays a big role as well. So I think that's part of where, um, where it comes into play and then, you know, limiting, you know, maybe excess movement or like you mentioned. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it could potentially be beneficial and it would be hard to pinpoint exactly what it is. But again, you know, in my experience, I haven't had anyone say anything negative where it's disrupted their sleep. So yeah, it wouldn't maybe necessarily be the first thing that I would go to. I'd rather try to, you know, kind of figure out what some of the underlying, you know, behaviors and, and things might be, but definitely can be valuable. Yeah, I can see the psychological aspect of just kind of comfort, right, which is de-stressing, which then enables probably a a better chance to fall asleep well. For sure. I mean, there's even, you know, I've even heard certain sleep experts you know, talk about when you, when you're, you're distinguishing between what side to sleep on, if you're a side sleeper, that sleeping on your left side with your heart actually facing down, it makes you feel more protected. So, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, again, a lot of, a lot of things can be viewed through the evolutionary lens, I think, and especially sleep. When we, when we look at the way we used to 
sleep and the environment and the environmental cues that we used to get that we no longer get in modern technology. We can see why there'd be a lot of issues. Um, and then again, that protective, you know, feeling of vulnerability aspect as well really links well from an evolutionary perspective. So number four, regularity. So regularity, and I, I, I didn't do this in any, these in any particular order, but if we were going to put them in order, especially when you're starting the journey to try to improve sleep, regularity is probably the single most important factor. Um, the reason is one of the governing mechanisms for how you sleep, how well you sleep, and really your overall health is circadian rhythms. So you know, without going too deep into the weeds on circadian rhythms, basically the circadian rhythm is an internal 24-hour or relatively 24-hour clock that we all have. It varies a little bit person to person, but the most important thing to note with circadian rhythms is that timing matters. Your body prefers synchronicity and rhythm, and this is every facet of your body. So it's not just sleep timing that operates on this rhythm. It's pretty much every cell and every physiological process of your body operates on this preferred clock and this preferred rhythm. And when we disrupt that clock, whether it's through sleep or the timing of when we eat or any of these variables or when we're getting light and darkness, we really throw off a lot of different physiological variables. And so there's a lot of theories out there of, you know, this circadian disruption really being the underlying link to why we're seeing such a, an increase in chronic disease, because we've disrupted our body's natural rhythm. And, you know, because of the fact that that impacts, like I said, so many elements and so many systems of your body, um, you can see how we would, we would see, uh, see a lot of issues. Yeah. I guess the, uh, the access to more or the free access versus programming, you know, even the streaming of content. Now you can get lost in the binge watching and you think it's a lot, you know, 1030 at night and all of a sudden you realize it's 1:30 at night. For sure. And I mean, you take food, for example, you know, we used to, again, going back to the evolutionary, I don't want to see him. I'm not an evolutionary bi biology person by any means. But it's, when we talk about sleep, it, it makes sense a lot. We used to have a very small window of actually accessibility to food, right? Where, We'd be out hunting for food. There'd be a certain period of time where we could come back and actually cook the food and eat it. Now, pretty much every second that you're awake, you have the ability to eat, right? As long as your eyes are awake, you can eat. Yeah. Um, and that goes against, you know, it's natural. You want long periods or periods of time where you're not having to focus on taking in food and taking digestion. Um, you know, the, the digestive system prefers that. Your autonomic nervous system prefers that. So, you know, when we disrupt that, again, we can really throw off a lot of things, including your sleep. And so, so to that point, uh, you touch on an area is around nutrition and the timing of when you eat. And so I've seen different things. Is there like a time before you go to bed? Um, and, and even explain if you can, the physiological effect as to why, um, that timing is important. Yeah. So the first, the first thing, and I think when you look at like you know, intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating, this is why I think it's been so impactful, um, is because it has you eating in a very specific window and it has it in a predictable window that you can keep consistent as opposed to, you know, some days you're eating until 10 p.m. and some days you're eating until 7 p.m., which is basically a constant reset of your circadian rhythm. In regards to the actual time that you give between when, the, when your last meal is and when you sleep, you really want to allow for about three hours when possible. Um, 
And the reason is one, like we talked about with respect to circadian rhythms. Uh, the second is that your body becomes prioritized with digesting the food. And when your body is, you know, that is a parasympathetic activity, but it's not the parasympathetic activity of sleep. So when your body is, you know, having to focus on digestion, you're not going to get into as deep of a parasympathetic state of being able to sleep as you would. And then the other thing is that it, eating and when you're digesting food actually elevates your body's core temperature. So one of the powerful circadian regulators and one of the powerful things <clears throat> that actually helps you to fall asleep and stay asleep is a drop in core body temperature. You want your, your core body temperature to drop a degree or two prior to bed for you to really fall asleep and get good quality sleep. So when you're digesting food, same goes for exercise with this respect as well. So if you exercise too close to bed, again, you're elevating that core body temperature and you need to allow time for it to come back down. Right. Yeah. I've definitely noticed where from the exercise perspective, you know, you're driving up the oxidation in your blood, which drives up your energy. And, and so it's going to be a lot harder to come down. Um, and then, so you mentioned temperature, the internal temperature, because your body's working, it's digesting. So it's active. So it's going to drive up your body temperature a little bit. What about the external temperature? Is that an influencer as well? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, this is one of the underlooked or undervalued, I think, methods when we talk about sleep. So we've, we're learning more and more and we're finding that temperature is a really powerful regulator of your circadian rhythm as well. Obviously, light is the, the primary, but temperature is a really powerful regulator as well. If we go back to the example of evolution and we go back to the way things used to be, you know, as the sun would rise in the morning, temperature would go up, right? The external temperature would go up, even if it was only a few degrees. So that would kind of cue your system and your physiology to wake up. And then as the sun would set, the temperature would drop a few degrees as well, which would be another one of those cues that would signal, you know, it's time for rest, it's time for sleep. And we're pretty much always in controlled thermostat environments now. And the temperature is usually set pretty much the same. So we're basically skipping out on that cue, which can be a really powerful cue. So what I find when I talk to people is that their, you know, the ambient temperature of their house, apartment, bedroom is typically much too high. So what I usually recommend is, you know, you want to be in the range of like 65 to 70 degrees. Um, if you're the type where you've had it at 75, you might want to make that drop a little bit more gradual. So it's a little bit easier. You don't want to be cold, obviously going, going to bed. But I think another thing that's important is to not just drop the temperature right when you're going to sleep, but make it gradual, make it similarly, similar to what we would experience in the environment where maybe you drop it a degree, you know, every hour in the three to four hours leading into bed. And I think that'll be a more natural kind of cue and a more natural process. There's other things that you can do as well. Hacks that will, basically simulate that core body drop. A warm bath is actually one of them, a warm bath or a warm shower. And it's for the opposite reason that people think. So, you know, people think that if they take a warm bath or a warm shower and they sleep really well after that, it's because they're feeling all warm and cozy. But actually what ends up happening is as all the blood is pulled to the surface, you get a decrease in your body's core temperature, right? On the surface, superficially on the skin, you know, temperature might be increased because you're getting blood flow pulled there. Your core temperature actually drops because of the blood being pulled away. So, that's a powerful thing you can, uh, can use as well. Interesting. I didn't realize that it was actually, even though you feel warm, like you said, it's actually physiologically doing the inverse. The opposite of what you think. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, so we touched a little bit on the, the physiology. Um, 
what what are there some other things maybe that we would not normally consider uh, as it relates to sleep? What are the, some of the the unknowns that people may not be aware of? Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of things here and a lot of possibilities and there's some myths and misconceptions that are out there. I think usually the thing that people don't talk about a lot. So when people talk about trying to optimize their sleep, it's very focused on technology and limiting technology, which is super important. Um, we can certainly talk about that, but first, which we've already started to talk about is the, the circadian rhythms and just how important timing really is. And I think we're really missing the boat on this. Um, so there's, there's what we call chronotypes. So chronotype is basically your genetic preference with respect to circadian rhythm. Now, we all have a little bit different variation of this, and I think this is pretty intuitive for most people, right? We've heard the night owls or morning larks. Um, and when you're on the extreme of those, I think you pretty much know. It's when people might be somewhere in the middle, and there's chronotypes that are somewhere in the middle as well. But I won't, we don't have to spend a lot of time going into each one, but knowing and understanding that there are these chronotypes and these preferences with respect to your circadian rhythm, figuring out which one you are, um, and then really what you're trying to do is match as many variables as you possibly can. And so the big variables here are light and darkness, temperature, like we talked about, exercise and movement, and nutrition. And Basically, what we're trying to do with all these things is keep them as consistent as possible. Again, your body likes synchronicity, it likes rhythm. So when you keep all of these variables very consistent, it's going to do wonders not only for your sleep and your sleep quality, but your overall health. So I think, you know, people have heard circadian rhythms, they might know that exists, they know how important light is and blue light. But I think understanding just how encompassing the circadian rhythm is and how important that timing is, I think we're really missing the boat. The other thing, and again, this is partly why I provide coaching, is those underlying behaviors are really important. So I think the behavioral aspect to improving sleep is really not talked about a lot. And there's a couple things that fit under this bucket, but first is just your thoughts and perceptions around sleep and how powerful that can be, especially if you've been struggling with sleep for a while. If you have a negative perception around your sleep and your ability to sleep, if you don't address that first, all the other hacks and all the other things are, are going to be much less impactful. So mindset so, matters. Mindset matters 100%. And I find this over and over again. You know, people you know, lose their confidence in their ability to sleep when it's been a long period of time. Um, you know, so I think trying to restructure your thoughts is really important. People also dramatize their sleep experience a lot as well. So obviously we know sleep matters and we know every night of sleep matters. Um, but when you start to get into the dramatizations of, oh my God, if I don't get eight hours of sleep tonight, I'm completely ruined. Again, there's other pillars, right? Try to check one of those pillars. Try to check one element of this and just start to move the needle forward a little bit. So even if you only got five or six hours of sleep, if it was good, uninterrupted quality sleep, you know, that's still a, a win. So build those small wins. And if you find yourself thinking any of those dramatizations, just try to be honest with them, right? Try to take a step back and look and be like, this may not, I may be kind of blowing this out of proportion a little bit. I'm still going to be able to function the next day. I'm not going to get fired from my job. I'm not going to, right? Don't, don't over-dramatize. And I think that's really under, underestimated. The other thing that I'll talk about under that behavioral bucket is what we call stimulus control. And this is probably one of the most powerful things that I've <clears throat> utilized with clients. And basically, stimulus control is the idea of keeping 
the association between your bed, bedroom, as being places of sleep and only sleep. Um, and I know this, you know, may even seem, you know, pretty intuitive, but most people are not practicing this. So what I mean by this is first, first and foremost, let's just talk the bedroom. So the bedroom should only be a place for sleep and sex. And I think the more things that you're actually physically doing in your bedroom that are not those things, the brain is very associative. So if you're doing work, if you're doing any other activities in the bedroom, you want to basically make your bed a sanctuary for sleep or your bedroom a sanctuary for sleep. Same goes, taking that a step further, same goes for your bed. So I think people do too much of their relaxing and winding down, lying in bed, reading in bed, you know, scrolling through social media in bed. All those things are, are completely fine. You know, if, you're, if you like to read and it helps you wind down, I think that's perfectly acceptable, but I wouldn't do it in the context of being in bed. Again, the brain is very associative. You basically want to make it so that you know, your brain knows as soon as you are physically laying in bed, it's just time for sleep and nothing else. Um, it may not seem like much, but it's very, very impactful. And when you build up this powerful stimulus control, for me, I've been working on it for quite some time. And it's to the point where, you know, my wife is really a pillow talker. You know, she likes to talk about the day as soon as we're lying in bed. Yeah. And most of the time I fall asleep on her because it becomes that, that powerful of a, a trigger where if I'm in bed and my head is the pillow, that's it. It's, it's game over. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great point. The mindset piece, um, what you're doing beforehand and, you know, the association, I've, it's been under review for us too, is where we've gradually decoupled things, you know, and today with the technology, not just the blue light, but what the content is, if your phone is right there and you happen to get an email that pops up and it's work related. You just drove up your stress levels up 100%. two seconds before you hit the pillow, which is the um, worst possible thing. Yeah, that's a hundred percent. It's a good, it's a really good point because the blue light is only one element, but I think probably what's even more disruptive when with the technology is that it's anxiety provoking, right? I mean, if you take social media, for example, social media is basically just a way to make people feel shitty about themselves. If you really think about it, right? Because I mean, if you're not feeling great in that exact moment for whatever reason, right? Maybe you had a poor day at work or whatever it is. And you get, you hop on social media before bed and you see someone just highlighting the highlights of their life, right? The best parts of their life or the best things of their life. You know, it's, it's intuitive. It's inherently going to make you feel even more crappy, right? And produce stress, produce anxiety. And those are, you know, any activations of the arousal system prior to bed are going to work against you. You know, even mild, you know, mild arousals are going to, are going to really work against you. So. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned already, you know, TV has been around for a long time, but with the accessibility of content and the type of content, uh, you know, even recently we started watching a show and it's kind of an intense drama. Mm -hmm. And then it's, we realize it's 11 o'clock and it's time for bed. And we just watched this intense thriller thing. And it's like, okay, I'm not really going to sleep anytime soon. Yeah. It's not probably not the optimal movie show. And yeah, it's, as much as it's entertaining, it's not the, the right type of entertainment. For sure. Um, so naps, we kind of touched on that. Good, bad, depend on the chronotype. Yeah, so um, they, they definitely depend. I wouldn't say they necessarily depend on chronotype, although timing of them will depend on chronotype. The, the reason why it depends is because every situation is different and there's, there's some principles that you want to apply when it comes to naps. And as long as you're adhering to the principles, they can be beneficial. So the first thing is, if you are currently struggling with sleep in any way, 
especially falling asleep, I would discourage you from napping. As counterintuitive as it may sound to make up sleep and sleep when you can, um, there's a couple reasons here. First is one of the mechanisms, basically the other mechanism other than the circadian rhythm that helps you to sleep is what we call sleep pressure. And it's a buildup of chemicals in your brain throughout the day for every second that you're awake that help you to signal sleep and good quality sleep. Um, the biggest one, most popular one is a chemical called adenosine. And this is why caffeine is effective. Caffeine actually binds to the receptors in the brain that are typically for adenosine. So adenosine can't latch onto those receptors. We don't get a signal for sleepiness, we get a signal for wakefulness instead. With respect to naps, when you're napping, you're depleting those adenosine levels, um, which if you're allowing enough time for them to build back up, it can be okay. But if you're someone who's struggling with sleep, especially falling asleep when you go to bed at night, you want a high, high amount of that sleep pressure built up to where it's so overwhelming that you just can't help but sleep, right? Um, even some of the methods that will be used in certain behavioral techniques with sleep is what we call sleep restriction. And you gotta be cautious with using this, but basically what you do is you restrict your sleep. You stay up later than you would normally think so that you allow that pressure to build up. And when that pressure builds up, it becomes so powerful and so overwhelming that you get, you get pretty good sleep. And then it starts to restore your confidence and it kind of cascades in that way. So that's the first thing with naps. Even if you're someone who is not struggling with sleep, you want to be cautious of nap timing and duration. So the first timing, um, I usually say I like to leave at least seven to eight hours after a nap time to, again, allow that adenosine to build back up. You don't, you don't want to sacrifice the ability to get good quality sleep at night in order to get a nap in the middle of the day. Um, the next thing is the actual duration of the nap. So naps should fit into two buckets. They should either be, you know, the, the common power nap that people know of where it's just a cognitive reset. And it's in this case, it's kind of 20 to 30 minutes, or they should be longer where you're trying to really attain a full sleep cycle and all the benefits that come with that. So in the range of like 75 to 90 minutes, but I think anything in between that, and it's kind of shortchanging one or the other, right? It's, not going to be as beneficial. You may risk yourself getting yanked out of one of the deeper stages of sleep, which we've all probably experienced at some point, and it just does not feel good. We call it sleep inertia. And it's just, I mean, it takes you forever to bounce back out. And then you really get in the opposite effect of what you want. Yeah. You wake up groggier than when you went into it and maybe even crankier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the last thing I would say with naps is, again, if you're adhering to the principles of the duration, the timing, and you're not someone who's struggling with sleep, going back to the importance of consistency in circadian rhythms, try to keep that nap time you know, the same. So if you're going to do it regularly and it doesn't impact your nighttime sleep, I think that's perfectly fine, but try to keep it pretty consistent. So don't nap at, you know, 12 o'clock one day and then three o'clock the next day. Right. <laughs> well, Nick, this has been um, full of great practical information. Just a quick summary on the pillars. So you've got duration, is one, two is quality, three is continuity, and four, regularity. And so summarize habit, consistency is key. Um, and then I guess it's personalized, so it's keep trying, right? And then give yourself a little bit of grace For sure. on, around those metrics, right? Don't over, I think you said don't over-dramatize one over the other. There's multiple levers within this. 
And if you can achieve one or more, it might be a W towards that progress to better rest. Um, so what is, I'll end with a couple questions, but what are practical two or three quick hit things that people can do immediately after listening to this? Yeah. So the first is take an honest assessment of the behavioral side of things. So practice the stimulus control right away, right? So try to make your bed and bedroom shrines and sanctuaries for sleep and only sleep and try to eliminate the things that you're, you're doing. The next is circadian rhythm. So figure out what your chronotype is. Um, and I can, uh, I can send you some resources that we can include for people to help kind of identify what that chronotype is and then try to line up some variables. So try to keep your, you know, light exposure consistent, try to keep your food timing consistent as much as you possibly can. And you're going to see, uh, you're going to see really big improvements. Um, the next thing is I think breath work is incredibly impactful. So I will sometimes have people do some paced breathing right before bed. And I find that it does wonders. Um, so I usually will do like a four, eight breath, uh, breath work. So four second inhale, eight second exhale, uh, four second inhale, eight second exhale. Um, you always want your exhale to be a little bit longer to induce that parasympathetic response, but do that in the you know 10 minutes before bed. Um, the last thing I think that's really impactful is journaling. So this kind of ties in with the behavioral side of things as well, where there's something about getting your thoughts and worries and to do's on paper where, you know, if they're written down, you're less worried about them when you're actually trying to sleep because you don't, it's very counterintuitive. You know, the only time we really get to think about things and process things is when our head hits the pillow, right? That's when we think about everything we have to do. And it's when we do our most thinking, but it's when we want to do the least amount of thinking. So implementing some journaling where you're actually getting these things down on paper, I think makes a, a tremendous impact. Great. Great. So uh, last three questions, more personal, but what are you reading right now? Uh, so I am reading, um, I'm in the process of creating an online uh, sleep course, uh, two products actually, one of which is a, um, a consumer-based product. It's called the Simple Six to Sleep. And the other is a course, it's called um, the Certified Sleep Coach Course. So it's helping other coaches actually go through this process of, of sleep. So I'm currently reading, I forget the name of the author, but I'm currently reading a book. It's called The Launch. It's the product launch formula. So it's you know, kind of going through the process of how do you actually, um, how do you actually launch a digital product and, and build up that way. Um, I'm also reading David Sinclair's new book as well. Um, I'm pretty obsessed right now with kind of the aging space and the, you know, the idea of, you know, understanding more about ways that we can promote health span and lifespan. So. Great. Um, what are you listening to right now? Music or podcast? Um, I'm usually a big podcast person and I pretty much exclusively will listen to, to podcasts, especially commuting, you know, commuting places or driving places, but being quarantined right now, I am pretty much uh, sticking to sticking to music um, and, and finding that it helps really to kind of get me through, uh, get me through the days. So I'm sure. leaning, leaning more towards music right now. So for you personally, what is one of your go-to rest and recovery methods? Um, so I touched on breath work already. I think this is something that's been incredibly beneficial for, for myself and my clients. I like it because it's a very low entry point for everyone. Everyone can implement it right away. Um, and it's incredibly beneficial in a lot of different ways. The other thing is meditation. And I think this is something that I talk a lot about with people is I think people have a negative context or negative uh, vision of meditation where they only view meditation as being mindfulness. Um, 
So they try to only empty their mind, which even mindfulness is really not trying to do that. So I think it discourages a lot of people from actually meditating. When they try to do mindfulness, they try to empty their mind, which is impossible. Right. And they suck at it, obviously. And then they just stop meditating altogether. So understanding that there's a lot of different elements to meditation, um, you know, visual imagery, there's a lot of different facets that can play into it that I think are, are super beneficial. So exploring, you know, different sides of meditation. Awesome. Well, again, Nick, you know, grateful for the time. Again, you gave a lot of great information, a lot of pr- great practical information. How can they find you? Yeah. So I'm on all the major social media platforms as the online sleep coach. Instagram is you know, one word, the online sleep coach. Uh, Facebook is the online sleep coach as well. Onlinesleepcoach.com. Um, for if you're a coach or practitioner, again, I'm going to be launching a uh, course coming up soon. And the website for that is sleepcoachcourse.com. Great. And we'll include all that in the show notes and uh, any other links around, you mentioned chronotype and other uh, good information. So again, Nick, thanks for the time. Have a great one. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Take care. I hope you learned a lot from Nick and our conversation on sleep, some of the key tools and tips on how you can act now to improve your rest. I would encourage you to check out some of his content on additional methods and tips on improving your sleep. Thanks for listening. We would love to hear from you. If you have feedback, any recommendations, most importantly, Please, whatever platform you listen to, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Anchor, please provide our a review. A five-star review would be wonderful, and thank you for listening.